welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, we hear stories so good, they're criminal. Story Story did some solid time at the old Idaho Penitentiary on September 26, 2017. It's Slammers in the Slam, with help from our show sponsor, Davis Family Medicine. We took our hit story slammers from the 2016-17 season into custody and each told a five-minute story on the theme Escape. Then they became real jailbirds in lockup as the audience posted bail on their favorite confessions and we named our slammer of the year. Don't let this moment escape you. It's story time. While away from whiskey, wild women and Here she is tonight, Brooke Linville. We sat in the booth of a roadside diner in northern Idaho on our way to Glacier National Park. Me, my sister, my half-brother, and my dad. The chicken fingers from the kids' menu arrived, and we talked about our upcoming adventures, mouths covered in ketchup. And then the tattered man shuffled in, face scruffy, jeans torn. Can you tell me how to get to the nearest playground, he asked the hostess. My father, six foot four, 240 pounds, narrowed his eyes on the man like a hunter stalking his prey. Granted, the man did not have any kids with him, but I assumed that they were in the car in the parking lot, just as my dad had done dozens of times with us. My father assumed that he didn't have any children and was there to kidnap some, (laughs) probably us, which he told us as I dipped my fry into the pool of Heinz on my plate. I watched the man disappear into the darkness outside, pushing my plate to the middle of the table. My father paid for dinner and we left the diner. I peered around the corners, waiting for this mystery man to jump out and take me. He didn't. We loaded into our red grand caravan, and we drove to the motel nearby. I changed into my pajamas. My dad took out his gun, loaded it, and set it on the nightstand just in case. I curled into bed, tucked my covers up under my chin, and stared at the gun. I tried to close my eyes, but every time I did, I imagined this gun falling to the floor, going off, hitting one of us. We were safer if I stayed awake. Every few minutes, headlights would shine through the thin curtain, and I was certain that the man had finally arrived to kidnap me. I'd bolt upright, look around, and then the shadows would disappear. I'd lay my head back on the pillow, try to close my eyes, think about the gun. Morning arrived, we were still in the motel, safe. My dad loaded his gun back into his bag. We got into our van and took off on our vacation. I kept a watchful eye out the rest of the trip. A month or two later, I found myself in another unfamiliar room. This time we were in McCall uh, in New Meadows at my grandfather's uh, house. My sister and I were gonna share a bed like we had that night. And this time it was a day bed and a pull-out trundle. And my brother and dad were gonna share a bed again in a uh, adjacent room 
French doors, solid wood beams. The guest bedroom looked out onto a golf course. There were no scary men to steal us there. So I tucked into bed, safe, ready to go to sleep. And I fell asleep against the cold railing of the day bed, my sister asleep below. I woke up several hours later trapped. I couldn't turn left. I couldn't sit up. Blackness surrounded me. I reached my right hand out to touch to see if anything felt familiar. Nothing did. I twirled the pink ruffles of my Care Bear nightie between my fingers. Maybe the mystery man had found me. Maybe I was stuck in the trunk of a car, shoved in the back of a barn, stuck in a stranger's closet. I peered skyward looking for any signs of light. There was a glimmer a few feet above me and I wondered if there was a window through which I could escape. Too high, I thought. So I screamed and screamed and screamed. I heard my father's muffled voice in the distance. Did they take him too? I imagined them trying to force my dad into a car against his will. Dad, I called out. Maybe this was a trick. I heard crashing. Where was I? Lights flashed briefly. Skooker, he called. Where are you? Over here, I said, not knowing where here was. Where, he asked. His voice sounded close. I waited. An oversized hand grabbed my lower shin and started to pull. It's me, sweetie. My dad pulled and I scooched toward him, my nightie shifting up over my hips. He pulled inch by inch to safety, trying to get me from this enclosure. The space was so small that I had to turn my head in order to clear the space, my face being scraped by the metal bar. I finally was free. I looked around. I wasn't in the trunk of a car, or in a barn, or in somebody's closet. I was still in my grandfather's loft, my sister asleep nearby, mouth breathing and oblivious. There was no kidnapper, only a daybed, that to this day, I don't know how I got trapped underneath. <laughs> it only took a few harrowing minutes to free me from that imagined abduction. It took a lot longer and a lot of therapy for me to get over the fear that my father instilled in me that night of what could happen from a strange man in a roadside diner to a young girl like me. Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Curtis Neal. Uh, so April 28th, 2010, this was the due date of our first child. And my wife, Amanda, and I had recently been married the previous May. And uh, besides our anniversary, this date had become the most important date in our lives. Um, there was a lot of anticipation. And, uh, you know, a due date is just kind of an approximate date. Um, some babies come a little bit early, and some come a little bit late and some come really, really, really late. And we soon realized that this baby was in no hurry to escape from the womb. So April 28th came and went. Um, 
A few more days passed. Amanda finished up with work and began relaxing at home in anticipation of this big day that we were beyond at this point. Um, we, at the time, we lived in the North End in a two-bedroom, one-bathroom house, a bungalow. This was a house that we would soon outgrow, but it had a really nice screened-in porch, and this was a, a great place to wait for this baby and pass this time. And, um, and then a few more days went by, and this peaceful anticipation of this coming baby um, started to turn into these feelings of anxiety and stress and dread. And then it was May 7th, and then it was May 8th, May 9th, May 10th. Um, finally, on May 12th, which was two weeks after the due date, <laughs> we decided to go back and see the midwife and see if there was anything else that we could do to try to induce labor, to get this process going. We'd already tried some of the usual stuff, like she would vigorously mop the floors. <laughs> uh, we took long walks. We did sex. Uh, she even tried acupuncture. And none of those things were successful. So we had read or heard somewhere that uh, castor oil could be um, something that might help induce labor. And castor oil is a laxative. It's a, a strong laxative. Um, and at this point, though, we were desperate, and the midwife said, sure, whatever, give it a shot. You might as well. And so I thought, well, you know, out of solidarity and support for my wife, um, maybe should I take it too? And um, she said, well, how many bathrooms do you have? And we just had the one, so I decided that was a bad idea. Um, so anyway, she took the uh, castor oil, Amanda did, and, um, and it worked. Her, uh, her water broke. And um, so a, a short time thereafter, the, the labor started, and we decided we had to go into the birth center, and this was finally happening. Um, and this was about 10 o'clock at night by the time we finally got to the birth center. So we were starting on just an empty tank, having had been awake since 7 o'clock that morning. Um, and then we were there for another 24 hours, and we were just exhausted. Um, this baby apparently decided that it was not interested in being born <laughs> in the calm, comfortable, peaceful birth center like we had envisioned for it. Um, but it's, instead, I guess, it wanted to be born into the uh, cold, sterile, fluorescent-lighted OR of a hospital and was born by C-section. Um, but even though this wasn't what we pictured for ourselves, the, the staff at the hospital was was really great. They even had a, a staff member that was dedicated just to me. Like, I guess that's called like idiot dad duty or something, just to make sure that I had eaten crackers and you know I wouldn't pass out or something. Um, and I also wanted to, we hadn't found out what the sex of the baby was, so I wanted to be able to announce that. Um, and the staff in the OR accommodated that. So I was the first one to say, 
that it was a boy when he came out. And so um, when Henry came out, he was screaming and crying, and um, the staff member on Idiot Dad Duty said, you know, get in there, talk to him, talk to him. And so I, I looked at him and I said, hi, buddy, we've, we've been waiting for you forever. Um, and he stopped crying and he looked at me and just kind of squinted his little face up and like he recognized my voice or something. It was really a magical moment. It's something I'll never forget. Um, but I also realized kind of at that moment that we had to break free from this idea that we, what we had envisioned for this child's birth didn't really happen. Um, we kind of got the opposite of that. But in that freedom, we got a beautiful baby boy and two new parents whose lives would forever be changed for the better. Alicia Dodson. So your comfort zone is something that's usually really, really easy to get into and really, really hard to get out of. And so for me, my comfort zone has to deal with speaking in public, which I guess I'm here, and also just speaking to people in groups, making friends and things like that. So I was always the kid in class who would be in the same class with the same people all year long, and I wouldn't talk to anybody unless they talked to me first. That happened all the way through elementary and junior high and high school and into college. It's really bad for networking, marketing purposes, jobs, things like that. And so the first time I really realized I had to get out of this for a really benefit to me, to something that was a goal, was when I was trying to learn Spanish. So I started learning Spanish in college, and all the 100 and 200 level classes all had four or 500 students in it, and they required everybody to have a 30-minute conversation lab once a week. But if you've ever tried to learn another language, 30 minutes is not going to cut it. You've got to talk to somebody more than that. So I had to find somebody to help me, and I wasn't sure where to look. Because none of my family spoke Spanish, none of my friends did, and none of my coworkers did. So I'm sitting there racking my brain trying to figure out where can I find a new friend to help me with my Spanish. And the place I decided to look was the adult store. <laughs> so for a handful of years, six, seven, something like that, I worked at an adult store. And I don't mean one of the nice ones that you're gonna you know, actually wanna take somebody to that's in the mall, maybe in a strip mall, next to a bar and a strip club, but not the nice kind of one. And in this skeezy, adult shop, there is a front room and a back room. And for the sake of this story, I'm gonna let you all interpret for yourselves what the back room is. And at the same time, there's front room and back room customers. And that also makes a really big difference. So as I'm thinking about who could possibly help me with my Spanish, a customer came to mind, a front room customer, a very non-threatening kind of front room customer. Someone that over the years came in with some frequency so you knew them by name, you, you knew their face. They were learning English, they were actually taking adult level English classes and they spoke Spanish. And we'd conversed on a couple occasions about me learning Spanish. 
and they were talking about how they were learning English too. So as I was thinking back to this person, I realized that it had been two years since I'd actually seen this person, since I switched jobs with the company and now wasn't actually working at the counter. So I had to devise a way on how I could contact this person without being a real stalker by going into the computer and pulling up their name and getting their phone number and actually calling them up, because that's not creepy at all. <laughs> so the best idea I had was to write them a note. You know, the kind of note from junior high. Hey, do you want to be my friend? Mark yes, Mark no. Something like that. So the note started out, hi, blank. I don't know if you remember me, but, yeah, that doesn't sound ridiculous. Here's my name, here's my contact, here's the deal. If you're interested, give me a call. And I gave the note to the clerk. Now this note, was essentially like a Hail Mary. There was absolutely no chance I was thinking this was ever going to work. And at the same time, even though I hadn't seen this person in two years, if they didn't contact me, it was actually a personal rejection somehow. <laughs> or even if they called me up and was like, what are you doing contacting me? You're crazy, you're weird. So I had all these fears going on in my head. And time passed, maybe a week or so, and they actually called me. I was pretty surprised. And I really wasn't sure if they recognized me or not. We decided to meet up, and the first time we conversed together was actually in the adult store parking lot. <laughs> Couldn't think of anywhere else to meet. They didn't know me, and I really didn't know them. We started talking. We started talking a couple different places around town. Once a week, for a couple hours, we've been conversing. So far, it's been seven years. And the relationships change from teacher-student to friends. We go to movies and hike. Kind of a second boyfriend, I guess. <laughs> but I wouldn't have had this friendship if I hadn't escaped my comfort zone to reach out to somebody. David Meyer. We escaped our fear led by the quietest girl in our fifth grade class. We escaped our fear of Mr. Johnson. Now, I have to tell you, when I go back to high school reunions in suburban Minneapolis, members of my fifth grade class, we seek each other out like former POWs. <laughs> Brother, it's you. Did Mr. Johnson really happen to us? Was that guy as wacky and scary as I remember? Yeah, he, he was. Back in the day, he stood about twice our height and at least four times our body weight. And he would, he would yell with big floppy lips like this with flopping jowls. Those, those yells were punctuated, this is the 70s, by the first knuckle poke to the chest. And, uh, you know, if, if that didn't work, there was a vice-like grip to the back of your neck so tight he could pick you right up out of your seat. Yeah. So we were alone and silent and scared. There was Mr. Johnson. And he would give us these life lessons that only Mr. Johnson could deliver. Like, you know, if I catch a cat in my yard using my live trap, well, I'm going to cut off its tail. That'll teach it a lesson. We're, t we're 10 years old. <laughs> and then there's the time that the neighbors forgot, and the dog did it. 
in his yard. I, I'd warned them a few years back, and you know, they need to be taught a lesson too. So Mr. Johnson took one of those orange five-gallon buckets and spent about a month collecting dog poop from around the neighborhood. So he adds a few inches of water to the bucket and then all the dog poop. And he waits for the neighbors to go up north for the weekend. That's what we do in Minnesota. And he, he takes a concrete trowel and this poop slurry goes over to their front porch, takes off all the furniture, pour and smooth, pour and smooth, pour and smooth. And he's proud of it. You know, it was about a quarter inch thick, just smooth right across the whole porch. I waited for it to dry overnight and then put the furniture back on there. You know, a job do do worth doing is worth doing well. But one day, he picked on the wrong kid. The little girl in the front of the class, Susan Mullaney. Now, if she said 50 words during the entire school year, I'd be surprised. She was one of those kids that even as like over-amped 10-year-olds, we knew not to pick on Susan. She just felt vulnerable to us. But not Mr. Johnson. He once saw Susan's desk didn't quite close properly. So he walks over, picks up the entire desk, and dumps out the contents on the floor. We see just a jumble, colored pencils, books, a cat notebook, Kleenex box. There, I got that desk cleanup started for you, Susan. You finish it up now. And he goes back to his desk. And then we hear it in Susan Mullaney's tiny voice. Bastard. <laughs> it was like a bomb went off. Susan Mullaney said bastard to Mr. Johnson. And then, what's up, Mullaney? And she looks right up at him and says, you didn't have to do that. It changed after that. Where once we might have had respect for Mr. Johnson because he was our teacher, he was just a big bully that picked on little girls. So after that, he would still stomp around the classroom, but every time there'd be a kid behind him pretending to stick a pencil in his ass. <laughs> we were united in fifth grade humor. <laughs> the best part is when he would leave the room and we would do our best <clears throat> Mr. Johnson in interpretations. What's all that noise here? You stop that. Oh, quiet now. Ongoing contest. So it's so much fun to go back to my high school reunions. We retell these Mr. Johnson stories. And something that I took from this is, is to look for those Susan Mullaney's out here in our world, the quiet leaders that can unite us and help us take down monsters. Ladies and gentlemen, Angela Root. So, about nine years ago, my best friend and I went backpacking through five South American countries in three months, before smartphones made traveling really easy, and it was an epic vacation. It was um, life-changing for many reasons, but we fought a lot. And on our last night in Lima, Peru, right before we were supposed to go home, we got into a really big fight. And 
Part of the reason why we had been fighting um, had to do with me and a lot of different things that were going on in my life. And one was I'm pretty sure that I had stopped smoking cigarettes. And I was losing this fight, and I knew she was right, but I didn't want to be wrong. So I left, and I was like, I'm going to go have a night to myself, and I'm going to have a cigarette, and I'll be right, even if I'm alone, and it'll be great. And I stumbled out into the street very confidently around midnight, and I took a cab. And I love to try to speak the language when I travel. It is my favorite way of connecting with people. Um, I'm not that good at Spanish, but I try. And so with this cab driver, who's named Miguel, who I came to find out was 32 years old, had never been married, didn't really want kids, had driven a taxi all his life, um, thought Peru was the coolest place ever and we should go get a beer. Um, I tried speaking Spanish and I had a really good time. Uh, the first place we went to to get cigarettes was closed. The second place we went to was more of a restaurant and it didn't really sell cigarettes. And by the time we got on the freeway, I realized we weren't going to a third place. It was immediately terrifying. Um, we had been laughing and joking the entire time and like I was really comfortable. And then all of a sudden, uh, there was this, you know, the feeling that goes up your spine and you're like, I'm not safe. So I start making whatever small talk I can make in butchered Spanish and Miguel's energy is changing. Now, if I forgot to say this, Miguel is like 300 pounds, okay? And um, we are definitely in an area of town that I don't know at all because I've never been to Peru. So we get off the freeway and we're in an industrial area and there are no lights and there are no people and I feel um, just, it's that moment where fight or flight happens and you don't know what you're gonna do. And he locks the door and he doesn't look at me. And I was like, es muy peligroso aquí, like, which is not correct Spanish, okay? But I'm like, so it's really dangerous here? Like, I know what you're doing. You can't freak me out. And he just says, see, sí, and looks forward and is smiling this evil smile. And I am fucked, right? So, sorry for that word. I wasn't supposed to say that word. So we get, we, we make a left down the street and he parks at the end of the street and he turns off the car. And now he's looking at me and he's like, saying things in Spanish that I can't repeat here because even if none of us understand, we all know that they're terrible things. He's saying terrible things that he's gonna do to me and he literally puts two fingers to the side of my head to like make me understand that he would shoot me if I didn't cooperate. And I'm screaming at him because I found my voice and I'm like, you take me back to my hostel right now. I don't wanna be here, I need to go right now. And he's like, no, and he grabs me and he tries to kiss me and I push him away and then he grabs me and then he's fondling me and he's grabbing me and he's pushing and pulling on the things that like you shouldn't touch, you know? And um, I push him back and I try to open the door and he locks it on his side and I try to open it and he locks it and I try to open it and he locks it and then all of a sudden I get it open and I kick him, like I kick like this. I fall out of the car and I like, he's got my pants in his hands and he's pulling them off of me and I get out of the car and I slam the door closed and for whatever reason, he drove away. Now I'm standing, well I stood, that was really hard, but I'm like standing in on the street and it's dark and I don't know where I am I just keep walking and his car is like tail lights have disappeared around the edge and it's foggy outside and it's completely barren and I walk until I see a street light I take a right and I see a cab and it took everything in my body to ask this cab driver to take me home um, but I did 
And so he takes me back to the hostel and I'm silent the entire time, I'm shaking. I know many of you have probably experienced shock. It is weird. So I get back into the hostel and I notice the clock on the wall says that it's 4.30 in the morning and I left at midnight. So I have no idea um, how long I walked for and it's really funny to me that I was trying to escape my best friend because when I got home or back to where she was and I saw her, I felt safe. Tim Chismar. Oh, it's nice to be back in prison. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is a pedigree for me. Uh, both my parents met on a bus coming back from prison. My father was a drug dealer and my mother stabbed someone nearly to death, so... Or as I say it in Hollywood, uh, both my parents are from a gated community. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my mother had dropped out of school in the 10th grade and didn't have a lot of skills, spent most of her 20s in prison, and uh, she raised me and my sister on welfare, and if you've ever seen the TV show Shameless, that was my childhood. Because uh, she didn't know how to manage money, she didn't know how to do anything, and she introduced odd skills to children at a young age, such as I, I learned the importance of lying uh, to a welfare caseworker across the table, where at least once a month I had to look right at him and say, no, I don't know who my father is, what his name is, what city he's from. I knew that, but that was what I was taught to do. Uh, also, anytime we had to go shopping, a lot of it was done with her empty purse. Uh, I remember going to amusement parks and filling it up with toilet paper for the, uh, for the house, which is, you know, interesting as, as early memories. Uh, one time I had to bring a lunch uh, for a field trip in the first grade, but it was the end of the month. And when you're a welfare family, that's when you got no money. So there's no money, there's no food. And uh, my mother decided that since the neighbors canned food, uh, she would just break in and steal a mason jar full of peaches. And uh, this would be what the first grader would bring to school. Now, a normal mother might, well, she wouldn't have done it to begin with, but if she did, <laughs> She would have taken some of the peaches out of the jar, put it in a Ziploc bag, that's what the kid would bring to school. No, this first grader, this little scared little first grader, had a mason jar of peaches in a bag for the field trip to the zoo. So I'm trying to get the lid off of this jar while other kids are eating bologna sandwiches and trading bags of chips. That, that's a memory. Uh, nice. I remember going door to door, uh, raising money for the local church. Uh, which was always interesting when I actually ended up in church and I would see, you know, a standing ovation for the kid that raised $75 for the church. And I'd look at my mom thinking, didn't we raise 300 like two days ago? Where'd that money go? To the church of beer. That's right. I, uh, she always stressed the importance of uh, not staying in school because she had dropped out in the 10th grade. She always told me that if things get difficult, go ahead and drop out. Uh, and without realizing the irony, she would say, you know, look at me. <laughs> and so I looked at her and I stayed in school. <laughs> and I uh, went to college. College was tough because as a treat, the dorms would say, uh, you get to go home for spring break or you get to go home for the Christmas vacation. It was really, really hard to explain that there was no home to go to. Uh, my mother's living out of a car. And that's when I realized I needed desperately to escape poverty. And um, I graduated from college, 
And uh, I had, you know, people ask me about my moral compass. You know, growing up that way, I mean, how do I know what's right and wrong, what's good and bad? Uh, you know, when you do all that stuff at such an early age to survive. So I needed to go someplace where they didn't have a moral compass. So I went to Hollywood, California. <laughs> where I've been a showrunner and hustler for TV and films for uh, about 12 years, and uh, it's, it's, worked out, it's worked out really well for me. Um, my movie, uh, Killjoy Psycho Circus, debuted on the El Rey Network last year, and I'm out here in Boise finishing up my very first memoir, which I'm excited about. And let me tell you guys something, just because you grow up poor doesn't mean you have to stay poor. And I didn't just escape poverty, I kicked its ass. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeannie Bean Peterson. Hi. I was a nurse for 40 years, 32 of them in the newborn intensive care unit, NICU as they're often called, and I was also on the transport team. We tr transferred babies, mostly preemies, maternal pregnant women with complications, and sick children to St. Luke's for care. I called it totin' and fetchin'. We used airplanes, helicopter, and ambulance. I was one who preferred airplane over helicopter. A pilot once told me, airplanes want to fly, helicopters don't. <laughs> when I first started, we used this Cadillac ambulance just like the one in Ghostbusters. She was so sexy and could fly down the road. When the Chalice earthquake happened and the two-foot pillars in St. Luke's were going swaying from side to side, our team was coming home down Broadway. They didn't feel a thing. That vehicle just floated over it all. Then like all good workers, she eventually retired and we went to the ambulances that you see today. One night there was a maternal transport to Enterprise, Oregon for a mother who was 28 weeks pregnant, uh, gestation into her pregnancy. Now that's three months early and we needed to go get her to bring her back to Boise, stop her labor and keep that bun in the oven. The configuration for maternal transport is the labor and delivery RN who takes care of the patient and the NICU RN and RT, respiratory therapist. We went along in case the baby were to be born and to help out the L&D nurse as best we could. We were in a King Air turboprop jet. The pilot and our respiratory therapist were up front, myself and the L&D uh, nurse were right behind him. Our seats faced each other and the patient went right along the side of the plane. We had settled in and were going over best case, worst case scenarios. Must practice the six P's. Pound of preparation prevents piss poor performance. When there's a pop and flames going by the window. The plane pitches, yells, and drops. There's a cacophony of lights and alarms going off in the cockpit. I say to myself, oh dear Lord, please land this plane. And then Michael the pilot gets her under control and leveled off and quiets the noise in the cockpit and tells us, looks like we blew an engine, call for the backup plane. Well, the L&D nurse was very frightened. Her eyes are as big as saucers and she's going, what's going on, what's going on, what's happening, what's happening? 
And I say, well, it looks like we've blown an engine. We're going back. Now, Michael's a very, very good pilot. I've flown with him a lot, and I really, really trust him. And this plane's made to fly on one engine. And she says, well, what if that engine blows? Well, now, that would be a problem. <laughs> but the likelihood of that happening is so remote, we don't even need to go there. She says, I'm not getting back on this plane. I'm not getting back on any plane. I said, oh, honey, you don't have to. It's okay. So when I call back to Boise and ask him to please get the backup plane out of the hangar, I also have to say, oh, and could you go to St. Luke's and pick up another L&D transport RN as this one won't be continuing on. <laughs> and she walked off the plane of that night and resigned from the team. By the time we got to Enterprise, we therapeutically lied, technical term, and told the mother that one plane was being serviced and we had to wait for the adult team to get back before we could come get her. The challenges and perils while transporting can be varied and come in many forms. Personnel problems, mechanical difficulties, weather, rain, snow, Ice, fog can cause trouble. There's nothing like being on that Twin Falls tarmac with that Magic Valley wind slapping you in the face and the rain going left and right and up your nose. Glamorous. <laughs> Fortunately, I was able to escape all that came my way, and there were others. Until 2007, when I had to stop transporting because I got diagnosed with MS. Now, I might not be able to escape the diagnosis of MS, but I ain't going down easy. Thanks for listening. Jeff Walker. In 1976, I was in third grade, and it was the inaugural season of soccer in Boise. The Optimus Club started a league here. No one really knew how to play, what to do, how to coach. But it was a, it was a beginning. It was a start. It was the start of a lifelong experience uh, for myself where I got to meet people, experience teammates, camaraderie, really build the person that I was and have an experience where I got to feel part of something bigger than myself. It was an up-and-coming sport. You know, through the years, as I went from elementary to junior high to high school, it was a club sport, and then my senior year became a varsity sport, so that was very exciting for us because we got to wear a Letterman's jacket, just like the football players. And so it was a really unique experience with guys that had grown up, we'd kind of seen it evolve, and, and we became very close, and it was really the heart and soul of, of, of my life. And it wasn't the biggest, strongest, or fastest on the team, but it was what I did, and it was part of who I was. And that, my senior year that fall, we had a coach that got promoted up from assistant coach to the head coach. I didn't really think much about it, but the previous year, uh, he had really given a hard time to one of my teammates who didn't return. And as I started to come into that fall, and, and I seemed to have replaced that teammate as the focal point for his anger, his, his belittlement, his degradation, his, his anger. And so that focal point, I didn't really understand. And, and as I go to practice, as I play, it became confusing to me exactly what the point of this was. And as I look back, I would think and say, well, maybe it's maybe it teenage ego. 
Maybe it was teen spirit, whatever it was. Maybe it was misunderstanding a coaching sternness or harshness or, 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 or you know, the coaching ability of like, we're going to run you hard and you're going to play hard and we're going to learn something from that. But when I looked around the teammate, the hostility he experienced with other teammates, the way he treated and belittled them, the way he tore them apart and tore us as a team apart was something I never experienced before. And as he went through this, I, it was very confusing to me as, to, as a teenage male who doesn't really understand social relationships that well anyway to watch why would an authority figure do this to all of us who had worked so hard to get here in a time where we thought this is the year we're going to win the state championship. And as we went through that, uh, it really became a point of conflict as to if I'd go ask a question, if I'd ask for help, I'd get pushed away. And this was a man that was a visiting Anglican priest who, you know, at those times was like, why would a man of God be abusing teenage boys? What, why would that happen? I know. But uh, as, as we go and play, it's one of the things is, as that age is, when you have conflict, the expression of it, the understanding of it, and how to deal with it, you become not so good at understanding and expressing yourself. So you act out. You act out in ways that aren't productive or healthy. And what I did really was I would bring a lawn chair to the games and set it up on the sidelines and sit there. Because I wasn't getting played, I was getting pulled out of games, I was faltering games, I was struggling in tournaments, and all I could do to think of was to express my emotions was just to come fully dressed, prepared in all my gear, and sit in that lawn chair and let him walk by. I didn't want to quit, I didn't want to do that to my teammates who I felt so close to, but that's all I knew how to do. It was, it was an imprisonment and a downward spiral and a place into pessimism and anger for a thing that I'd valued so much in my life, and I was watching it slip away, and the joy that I had of play went away. We ended up getting second in the state tournament, and I remember being handed the trophy. And the trophy for me meant nothing. The trophy for me was just representation of something that had been taken from me, of the joy, the excitement, for a man that wanted to control, and for a man that wanted to make us feel bad about ourselves, a man that tore my teammates apart. And it was in that imprisonment of anger I didn't know what to do. So, in the, so when the season was over in December, in the dark days of around Christmas, I was visiting with a really good friend of mine. My, my buddy Mike Ballantyne was, was talking to me. He goes, hey, don't let that hoser take you down, eh? He's, uh, you know, just tell him to take off. He wasn't Canadian. He just was really into Bob and Doug McKenzie Christmas album that year. But I appreciated, I appreciated what he was trying to say. He's like, take off, eh? And so... So I, I decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to with this counseling and this help. I decided, okay, I'm going to spring, play spring league. Let's give this a second try. Let's try it again. But again, when you are trapped and imprisoned in anger and frustration and, and authority in adult is something you want to just run away from and get away from, it's hard to listen to coaching. So the team formed up. The coach was Hong, Hong Yu. He was a BSU student. He was from Hong Kong. The first practice didn't go well, second, third, fourth. Basically, he would ask me to do things I wouldn't do them. He asked me to uh, do a certain thing, play a certain position. I was just fighting it and fighting it and fighting it. The only way he was getting through to me was really basically going like this, like, Waka, you suck. Give me 20 push-ups and three laps. Over and over and over. Waka, you suck. Give me 20 push-ups, two laps. 
He'd kick me in the shin, hit me in the head. And I know that sounds abusive, but also too at the same time he'd say, Waka, you're better than this. I know you can play. And through this little five foot one guy sitting down there and just really saying a couple things like, I believe in you, you're better than this, I'm gonna run you, I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna encourage you, I'm gonna listen to you, and I'm gonna get you in the place that you play best. We feel good, you feel safe, you can play. Lap after lap, puss up after puss up. <laughs> I slowly had to embrace my anger, my frustration to escape from that. Going through that process was good. It allowed me to play free, to enjoy the game, to bring myself from a place of entrapment to freedom. At the end of the year, we got to the point where he was happy. We won the division. I got like the team captain. And for our, for our party at the end of the year, he threw us a kegger. We were 17 and 18-year-old teens. It was a nice final end to my senior year from my coach, Hong Yu. So that was, that, was, that was the end of the season. And again, that's really what I really understood what imprisonment and escape was. But I, just one quick epilogue to the story is that he called me the next year and I got to play with him as a peer. It was me and all the cooks from the Golden Star restaurant. <laughs> all Asians and the token white guy. I got to interact with Ref on every foul and red card and yellow card. I don't know if I won or lost or, or got a championship that year, but I got to play and love and enjoy, and it was beautiful. That's my story. He's Peter O'Connell. Uh, thanks. This is wonderful. Um, as, uh, currently, as a stay-at-home dad and a former high school teacher, it's a really great treat to actually have a captive audience. So this is... <laughs> But then I realized that every single one of you is judging me against them, so it kind of brings me back down a bit. <clears throat> so thank you. So uh, in high school, my friend John helped a gorilla escape from work. <clears throat> he worked at a place called Import Plaza. John did. They sold a little bit of everything, um, including the lifelike gorilla suit from time to time. So John, being the model employee that he was, took one of these gorilla suits stuffed it in a big black garbage bag one day, and took it out with the rest of the trash doing his job. And then went back that night after work into the dumpster, found the trash bag with the gorilla suit on it and brought it back out. So we have this gorilla suit at our disposal now. And the next step, <clears throat> naturally, was to find a place by the zoo and convince passing motorists <clears throat> that the gorilla was real and the gorilla was on the loose. And so I remember, I remember John kept saying, we're going to make the 11 o'clock news, man. 11 o'clock news. <laughs> and so this, this brought us to Forest Park in Portland, just, just adjacent to the zoo. About a mile from there is Cornell Road. And in Portland, Cornell Road kind of curves out of the city in the northwest and up into the hills and comes up through this long, long tunnel. The other side is this dark, dense forest. So we went up there. And John puts a suit on, puts it on, it fit him really well. He made a very convincing gorilla. 
and we would sit there and wait, wait for cars to come up through the tunnel. You'd hear a car, and we'd be like, okay, <laughs> let's do it. Like, so we'd hear a car coming up, and then just as the lights would kind of illuminate the exit of the tunnel, I'd take my spot, I'd hide in the bushes real quick, and John, I'm sorry, <clears throat> the gorilla would kind of amble into the middle of the road and kind of, really, it's dark, it was dark, and it's like a while ago, there weren't a lot of lights, and, and the cars would come up, and it was like, oh my God, it's working, the cars would come up, and they'd slow down, and they'd look, you know, he'd come up, and they'd get shine in the lights, and he'd run off into the woods in the darkness, and they'd come up, and they'd slow down, and they'd stop, and they'd pull over, and they'd look, and nobody got out of the car, I was like, felt safe in the bushes, uh, until the following weekend, and then uh, we went back to the same place. Cornell Road up the end of the tunnel, there's like, now there's like four or five of us hiding in the bushes and John's in the gorilla suit and kind of out in the middle of the road. It's, it's great. It's wonderful. It's perfect. We're having a great time. <clears throat> Excuse me. All of a sudden, one of the cars doesn't slow down. Like, it comes to the edge of the tunnel. It speeds up. It cruises up, speeds up, tears to the side of the tunnel, slams on the brakes. Driver, Driver gets, gets out, out and just starts running, running down, down the trail, the trail after the gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> four or five of us are in the bushes, like, <laughs> we start running after the driver. So we start taking off down the trail after the driver, after the gorilla, hoping our friend John is not going to get shot with a tranquilizer or something. And as we catch up to him, John, like, tears the gorilla mask off, and he's like, whoa, not a real gorilla, just, just kids, we're just kids with a gorilla suit. <clears throat> and this guy... It was great. He was like, oh my God, am I so glad to see you guys. I drive this road like pretty much every night. And last weekend, I swear to God, I drove through this tunnel and I saw a gorilla in the middle of the road. And I got home. I got home and I told, I told my roommates what happened. They're like, dude, no way, man. You're having an acid flashback. <laughs> so we're there on the trail and he's like, he's like, like he's like, and I swear to God, man, I haven't done acid in like three years. <laughs> and so we're like looking at him, we're like, what is going on? And he's like, I am so glad to see you kids right now. And we're like, yeah, we're pretty glad to see you too. It's like, <laughs> so we called it a night. <clears throat> called it a night after that one. And then went back the following weekend. And, uh, <laughs> So we go back to the same spot, Cornell Road. It's great, it's perfect. Like, why mess around now? At this point, we have like a dozen of us in the bushes. And uh, our friend Mike gave a shot with a gorilla suit. And so Mike puts the suit on. Sure enough, it fit him great too. It's like, he gave us a couple hours of entertaining us with cars going by. And we, end of the night, we're walking back up to our cars. A couple hundred yards up the road, a little turnout. And right as we get to the turnout, we notice lights flashing behind us. We're like, uh-oh. Those are red and blue lights. That's the only reason there's red and blue lights behind us. Two cop cars, cop cars pull in real quick, and they kind of pin us between where we had our cars parked, and they kind of came in and parked right away. And they pull over and they get out, and they're like, hey guys, um, we've been getting a lot of complaints up here lately. Um, <laughs> like about something, some sort of animal on the road, maybe something got out of the zoo, maybe an ape, I don't know. And, so we're like, oh no. I don't, you know, acting totally surprised. We're telling, you know, we're just out for a hike tonight, you know. We're just, I mean, if you know Forest Park, it's not that 
unplausible. It was a great place, you know. For... But we forget that Mike is like still in the gorilla suit, you know. <laughs> he's he's kind of standing behind one of the cars. And he, he doesn't have the hood on, but he has like from neck down, he's still a gorilla. And the, <laughs> the two cops look at him, they're like, well, who's that, you know? And, I forgot about him and they call him so they call him around front they're like why don't you come around here we want to get a full look at the suit and he he puts the mat the head of the suit back on and he gives them kind of a <laughs> gives them what they want <clears throat> and I just these two cops there are two cops two cars they look at each other and one is like looking and she's like you know what I just I don't think this is the ape we're looking for <laughs> <laughs> And the other cop, the other cop's looking at him, he's like, it's like, no, no, it's, it's, it's definitely not the ape we're looking for. And he's like, he's like, yeah, you guys, you kids should probably like, just go home and don't do this again. And so we did, we went home just in time for the 11 o'clock news. It is my great honor to present the Story Slammer of the Year 2017 to Jeannie Bean Peterson. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party, Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Bob Haycock, and me, Jody Eichelberger. This project is supported by the Boise Arts and History Department. Thank you to the Slammers and the Slam show sponsor, Davis Family Medicine, and to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari, featuring live music from the storytellers. Support this storied program, find upcoming shows, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. We want to hear your stories. Email us at story at storystorynight.org. While away from whiskey, wild women and beer.